Welcome, everyone, to another pseudo-exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm today's host, Will Button, and joining me in the studio today is Jonathan Hall. Hey, I am pseudo-happy to be here. (laughs) So is that pseudo-p-s-e-u-d-o or pseudo-s-u-d-o? Depends on whether I need permission to be happy. (laughs) That's awesome. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So today we're going to do a little uh, pseudo DevOps therapy. I've got a new application I'm working on the back end I'm writing as a a backend API I'm writing in Go. So we're going to talk about the different things I need to do to make this like a DevOps ready application, like the tools, the processes, the configuration that should be in the initial version of the app so that as I write code on it and as additional developers join a team and write code on it, that everything happens in a DevOps way, whether you know that you're doing the DevOps thing or not. Right. So some of the things I've been thinking about, I where I usually start is like, starting to write code on the application, like how do I contribute to this thing? And I try really hard on all the applications I work with to get that down to a single command. So a new developer joins the team. The only thing they need to do to start contributing is have Docker installed, their editor of choice, and then check out the repo and type the command make dev. So I use make files for that most of the time. But whenever you type make dev, what that's going to do is launch a Docker container with Postgres. It's going to seed the initial database that you need with some uh, test data in there. And then it's going to launch a Docker container with the API and hot reloading so that as you change the text, it identifies that some of the files have changed and reruns the go run application so that you can preview your changes real time. So that's a starting point for me. What does your starting point look like? Yeah, so my I think that's a great place to start. I'm usually a little bit less, I create a less involved dev environment usually, especially for a small thing I'm doing by myself. And I usually build that up over time. And part of that's because I don't have like a, a template that 
I like I don't mean like a physical like file template, but like I don't have a mental template of what it should be. So it's not it's not obvious like, oh yes, I definitely want this and this and this. I definitely want to use Docker Compose or whatever. I've worked on teams that had that and it's great if you can just you know, run a single command, whether it's make dev or Docker Compose, whatever, whatever, that fires all that up for you. The things I usually think about are are usually a little more I guess more in the in the details, logging libraries, uh, which you you talked about. You know, I want a, a single logging library that I can use throughout my application. So that's usually one of the first things I put in place. I want a logging library to do two things for me. I want it to log all logs, all, all, all relevant logs somewhere. And I want it to send errors somewhere that are noticeable. I usually use Sentry for that, but there are other services that do that, something that can create alerts from errors. And then assuming this is a, a web-based service, whether it's REST or or gRPC or anything that uses HTTP. I usually create a middleware that that turns a certain set of HTTP errors into errors that get logged and, and alerted. 500 is an obvious case. If I get a 500 error, I want to know about it. Uh, I don't want those just disappearing into the void somewhere. And then I don't know until some customer calls me six months later and says, by the way, this thing's not working. And I go, oh, I've been getting 6,500 errors a minute for the last 10 months. I didn't <laughs> right. notice. <laughs> So you know, I'm really, I'm really careful to to set up logging uh, like that, and then CI/CD is is one of the first things I I set up my my CI/CD pipelines. Um, so I can I can build, I can run my linters, I can run style checking, I can run tests. Even if I have zero tests to begin with, and usually I do because it's a first pro- beginning project, but I'll I'll still set up a you know a go te- in the case of a go tool a go you know something I'm building in Go. I run the go test with the race con- race detector on and so on, even though there's zero tests to run initially. Just make sure it's in place so that as soon as I add tests, I know that I have my regression cases covered. And then I deploy it somewhere. So yeah, I, I pretty much try to make sure I have my, my full CICD in the, in the sense of like deploying, maybe not to production because it's probably not in production yet, but at least to a sandbox environment that I have access to and I can test against. So I, I make sure all that's done. And then, yeah, for local dev, I... I I tend to, I, I usually have Postgres running on my local machine all the time mm-hmm. anyway, because I use it for many projects. So I don't necessarily want a Postgres database running in a Docker image just for my testing of a new app. So what I usually do is I let I, I configure my new app to, to accept some environment variables to tell me which database to connect to. And then I can just use my existing Postgres. If those variables are set, then I connect my existing Postgres instance. If they're not, then go ahead and fire up a Docker image uh, of Postgres, for example. Um, yeah. op- that's an optional nicety, but it's something I like, especially if you're on a, on a memory-limited laptop. You only have gigs or something. You don't want you don't want every app you're doing to r- start its own Postgres instance or whatever. Yeah, true. I think that's one of the unique constraints of the, the type of work that both you and I do is we tend to work on a lot of different projects, and there may be overlapping right. dependencies between those. I, I'm the same way, like I'll notice, <laughs> not intentionally, but eventually I will notice that I do have multiple Postgres containers running for that very reason that you just yeah. said. Yeah. But I did get into that habit just from working with a lot of the work I've done is building out like the DevOps environment for teams that I'm not part of. And um, so that's where I got into the habit of including the database in the Docker Compose file is those developers are typically full-time employees of that company, not working on any other projects. And so it just eliminates a, a step that they need to complete whenever they yeah. uh, get onboarded. When you're setting up a dev environment for a new project like this, what operating systems do you target? Primarily OSX. Uh-huh. Occasionally, I'll, I'll work with a developer who has 
Linux, but with the exception of the last project I worked on, which was for a university, they had some Windows laptops, but I, I rarely interact with Windows anymore. I was on a project a few years ago that had all three, and that made the dev environment quite a pain to, to manage. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm a Linux user, so Linux and OS X are sadly similar yet different. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, like 90% of the stuff works, but the, the 10% that doesn't is vastly different. And right. there's just, it's not like you can just do an if in your bash uh, statement and like, if it's OSX, do this. And if it's Linux, do that. It's like, if it's OSX, you have to run, I don't know, Docker desktop instead of this whole other thing that you're doing on Linux uh, or, or whatever. So it's unfortunate if you can limit it to a single dev environment, if all your devs are using OSX that simplifies things drastically. Yeah, that's one of the areas where using Docker, like once you get Docker installed for whatever operating system you're using, that's one of the places where it's really been helpful, specifically in some of the Node.js projects I've worked on by running the application inside of a Docker container. I can say, use this Docker image built this way with this version of Node.js on it and get out of that that place where you have to tell someone, oh, okay, well, we're using Node.js version 14.6.3. Don't use any other version. You, know, you can eliminate that step because you just specify that in your Docker build file. And so they don't even actually need the Node.js runtime installed on their local workstation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do with regard to, uh, like, like, how do you, with Go, it's relatively straightforward, but if you're using Node.js or something, what do you do with regard to code style? Uh, do you have a default style you use and do you kind of commit that into your, you know, an ESLint config file or something to your repository so that everybody's using the same thing? How, how do you handle that aspect of, of getting things ready? Yeah, there's, I can't remember what the exact URL or website it is, but uh, Google has like a, an ESLint file that they've agreed on. And so I usually just use that and mm-hmm. the and put that into the repo. I figure if if it's good enough for Google, it's fine for me. I don't have a strong enough opinion either way to to deviate from that. I've worked with a few teams that have started with that and then made some of their own changes to it. But uh, yeah, it's all tracked in a, in the ESLint file. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's a, it's a really good first step. I mean, the sooner you solve that question the sooner you avoid the bike shedding discussions about, wait, which style should we choose? We want tabs or spaces. You know, that's just a huge flipping waste of time, to be honest. Absolutely. Uh, pick a style and go with it. And nobody actually cares what it is, especially if you can get your editor to do it on save. Then just type your code and hit save and, and it formats for you. And, and Go makes that super easy with GoFumped. I wish every language was, was as standardized. And to be clear, I don't like the way GoFumped does stuff. I've always been a... <laughs> <laughs> a, a spaces guy over a tabs guy. Right. But, you know, I, I'd rather just not have the conversation. I'd, I'd rather be wrong about that and not have the conversation than con- convince somebody I'm right. <laughs> yeah, I've been writing this application. I use the JetBrains suite for everything. So I've been using Goland for this. And it's super cool to watch it. You know, I'll I'll type stuff and use spaces or it won't be aligned right. But then the minute you hit save, you can just watch the whole page just and it formats yeah. everything for you, which is really cool. Yeah, I love that feature. If there's any language that doesn't support that, uh, I'm sorry you have to use that language because <laughs> it's, it's such a nice feature to not worry about that aspect of things. So there's also GoLint, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, GoLint CI, 
Dash Lint is the tool that I, I recommend. I think it's really the only one out there. There used to be one called Go, uh, Go Meta Linter, but it's been deprecated. Basically, it, it, it combines dozens of linters for Go, including Go Thumped and Go Imports and some of the, some of the default ones, Go Vet, uh, but a bunch of other third party ones. And you can configure each one individually or you can pick the ones you want. It has a nice default set. Um, and you can, and it, it runs them all concurrently. And, and the nice thing about the way Go works is because the Go library itself ships with its own AST parser, abstract syntax tree parser. It only has to run that once, and then it can pipe it through all these different linters. So, you know, if you do Prettier and ESLint, and you, if you pick 16 of these different things you want to do on, on Node or on your JavaScript code, generally you have to, it has to read that file, parse it, and each one of those linters does that same process over and over again, which makes it relatively slow. Right. So this tool with Go, it does that, it reads the file once, it parses it once and passes it through all these different linters, uh, potentially dozens of them, how, depending on how you have it configured. And it's super fast. So, I mean, I think the default timeout is 60 seconds or something, and rarely do I go over that. Sometimes on really large projects, I do need to increase that, but it's, it's super configurable, super fast. It's a great tool. I think everybody should use it. I did a lightning talk on it at the local Amsterdam Go meetup a couple uh, weeks ago. So definitely a tool to use. <laughs> do you include that in like a git pre-commit hook so that it runs before the code sent to github or do you just rely on your ci cd suite to take care of that step i usually don't use git pre-commit hooks but that's mostly out of habit i mean i, I do tend to run golang CIlint locally as well there is a risk of course of of version differences right. you know if your local machine run is, is a few versions behind you might end up with some slight difference or something so even if you're doing a pre-commit hook, you, you're still wanting to depend on your CI to, to run whatever your official version is that your team has decided on. But it, yeah, usually it's fast enough that you could put it in a CI pre-commit hook, or not CI hook, but a, a Git pre-commit hook. Uh, I just usually don't. And, and But I'm also in the habit of running it when I need to. And, and in fact, my editor runs it for me. <laughs> oh. My IDE yeah. runs it. I, I'm sure I'm sure Goland can do that. I use VS Code usually, but I'm sure Goland can do that. So on save, it just runs that, that package through the linter. Yeah, it may be doing that already and i just wasn't aware that it was doing that <laughs> that's that's one of the things i do like about the the JetBrains product is they tend to do a lot of that stuff for you mm -hmm. yeah so i mean it, i don't know if you, if you ever type uh, an exported function name and you don't type a go doc for it does it tell you does it complain if so it's probably doing that gotcha so yeah i, I guess that's the other reason i don't i don't have it in the pre-commit hook because it's i'm doing it before that without you know it took me a minute to make to connect the dots but yeah True. Yeah, because I have noticed that in some of my, uh, like, if I'll write, if I write a comment before a method or something, mm -hmm. it will put squigglies underneath it and you highlight over it and it says, it'll give me, like, some suggestion, like, your comment should really be formatted like this or something. Okay. That's that's one of the default linters. So it's, it's doing, I don't know if it's running Golang CI Lint, but it's running something. Gotcha. So. so we've got creating the dev environment, standardized logging, CI CD. If you're deploying to Kubernetes or any other sort of like managed system, you want some sort of health checks in there too. Yeah. I mean, at minimum you want, I mean, for a simple web service, you can always configure Kubernetes or whatever, just to connect to the, to the root of the service and see if it's responding. With a minimal effort, you can make a little smarter health check. So, you know, Kubernetes by default gives you the option for a ready check and a, a health check, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember the, I had to look up the exact differences, which one does which, but you know, the basic idea is one tells, tells Kubernetes the service is running, so don't kill it because it's, it's in the process of doing something, but it's not ready to serve requests yet. So check the other request to make sure that, uh, 
you know, so normally you want to do the, I, I wish I remembered which, which was which, but you want to tell it, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's health means it's the service is running and ready means it's ready for request, but I could have that backwards, but whichever it is, you want to like immediately start responding to the first to say, yes, the service, the process is running, the process is healthy, but I'm still establishing database connections and, and populating a cache or whatever things you might need to do. Uh, so don't send me requests yet. Right. And then, and then you trigger the other one. And if you want to get sophisticated, you know, maybe later on in your application's lifecycle, you detect some sort of error. The database went down. So I'm still here. I'm still probing for the database, but I'm not, I'm not taking your requests right now. So you can flip that, that second one off and hopefully until that, that situation resolves itself. And then on shutdown in reverse, you can say, don't give me more requests. I'm shutting down and then wait until you're actually shut down to, to shut down. So that's, that's a nice thing to put in there to think about if you're using Kubernetes or something that does similar health probing. Uh, make sure you do that instead of depending on the defaults, which are not always very, very granular. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've got a health check endpoint there that I've already added to it that does verify it has connectivity to the database. I think that's all it's doing right at the moment. Isn't it? I think it's called the, there's the readiness probe and the liveness probe. Are those the right terms? That might be be what it is. Yeah, I think that's it. So I think ready means the cert. I think that means, well, I don't remember. I had to look up which one. I still don't know which one is which, but I think that's what they're called. Yeah. Yeah. Because I could... I could launch a very compelling argument to make either one mean whatever we want it to mean. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm <laughs> okay. Ready means the service. Is, wait, no, ready means the, the process. Wait, no, I don't know what ready means. Something is ready. <laughs> it's like arguing with an attorney. What does the word the really mean? Depends on the definition of is, is. <laughs> so a, a related point that I don't do this very often, but a lot of people do uh, is and it's super easy and go is to set up Prometheus metrics endpoints. So if, if you're if you're using Prometheus and you want it to feed data to it easily, you can just, you know, it's basically a, a couple lines of code in Go to, to set up your controller or your middleware. And then you have your Prometheus endpoint there. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, I really like that approach of where you just expose the metrics that are relevant to your application. And then Prometheus comes along and scrapes them every every few seconds or whatever. Yep. So that's one of the other features this that I'm going to add to this is along the lines of metrics of standardized reporting and like build a dashboard. So the the monitoring and alerting dashboard for this application is going to be defined in the application repo itself. So whenever it deploys, I'll be running it on AWS. It's going to create the uh, CloudWatch dashboards as part of that deployment process so that we know there's a dashboard that exists. We know what the URL is. And then as we trigger alerts from it, it can include a link to that dashboard. So that's one of the problems I've faced in the past with larger applications as they grow is either they don't have a dashboard 
displaying the metrics that are relevant to that application at all, or it does have a dashboard, but nobody really knows where that dashboard is. And so you log into whatever your dashboard tool is, whether it's a data dog or whatever, and there's 200 dashboards available. Meanwhile, your application's down, you're in a priority one outage, and you're not really sure which dashboard is going to tell you relevant information. I suppose another point that's, that's worth talking about is how your app is configured. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a thousand ways to configure your app, and different languages have their own sort of defaults. You know, like, I think Node.js really likes to use an env file. Mm-hmm. There are Go libraries that give you the same sort of functionality. I've, I like to... I like to use environment variables for stuff like this because it, you know, it, well, for one thing, it sort of falls in line with the 12-factor uh, application concept, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good one if you're writing apps like this. And it's really easy to configure with Docker or or Kubernetes or, you know, just about anything can handle environment variables. Your CI pipeline can feed those variables in as, as necessary. And, and it's usually easier to do that than to have your CI environment write a YAML file or whatever format you might have on, on disk. Right. So, I think that's an important thing to consider is is how is your is your application configured? Is it configured in a way that's easy for every different environment to do the configuration necessary? And I, by my estimation, the simplest way to do that is environment variables. With a, with a few exceptions, you know, there are some types of config that are really hard to put environment variable, like a uh, JWT or or your 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 AWS credentials or or, or anything that's that's potentially kilobytes long, you know, a long, a long file or whatever. Uh, in that case, I usually use an environment variable pointing to a file, but that's usually the only exception I have to that. Yeah, I tend to rely on environment variables quite a bit. I've been, over the last couple of years, I've been toying with the idea. I've, I've had a reasonable amount of success implementing this. I may try to iterate it on it this time, but specifically to your point of any JWTs that your application needs or API keys or credentials or different things like that, storing all of that in something like AWS Secrets Manager. And then when your application launches, it has the necessary permissions and just enough information to grab the relevant set of credentials from Secret Manager whenever it launches and then uses them that way. Yeah. Yeah, secrets management is a is a whole other topic that I wish I knew more about. I don't I don't have a go to solution for that. You know, every every project I've been on does it a different way. Most of those ways are are bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> We've identified all the bad ways to do it, so we're going to stumble on the right way eventually. <laughs> uh, I mean, at, at minimum, of course, we talked about this on previous episodes. Don't keep your secrets in Git. Yeah. At absolute minimum. Keep them if you're using GitHub or GitLab. Keep them in the configuration section of Git, Git, uh, GitHub or GitLab, which are fed into your CI pipelines as as variables. That's not perfectly secure, but it's a heck of a lot better than keeping it in your Git repository. A proper secrets manager is a is the next step. And, uh, but in any case, if your if your application can read that as an environment variable, you're you're on the right track. Yeah, and I usually set that up so that it's it's like this specific value should be this environment variable, or if that's null or nil, then use this string. Mm-hmm. And that string is usually like the local, whatever local variable will work for the dev environment. You know, it's so like local host is your, your database URL, if nothing else is specified. Right. That way you don't need, you don't need to manage secrets or config files 
locally when you're developing, those are just the defaults. Right. Assuming nothing else is provided. Yeah. But that gets dangerous when your local dev environment does depend on a third party API, like maybe SES or, or something like that. Right. You don't want to have it depending on that. It's, in those cases, it's better to, to fall back to either not starting or just telling you, sorry, the, that service is unavailable in dev mode or something like that. Right. So we talked about config management. We've talked about logging. We've talked about dev environments. We've talked about monitoring even Prometheus metrics and health checks. Okay, here's here's an important one related to health checks, I guess. Make your service implement a graceful shutdown because it's going to be shutting down. <laughs> right. So uh, by that you mean any in-flight connections are allowed the time they need to finish and close down. Right. And uh, and you don't like kill those halfway through. At, at minimum, uh, make sure that any operation you're doing, if it's aborted at any moment because the machine crashes, won't leave your database in a bad state, for example. <laughs> so use transactions <laughs> and stuff like that. Because I mean, if you're deploying to a cloud uh, environment, I mean, if you're, even if you're deploying to bare metal, but especially if you're deploying to, deploying to a cloud, you expect your service to come and go frequently. Right. If you're doing CICD, it'll probably be deployed, if you're a single person team, maybe three or four times a day. If you're a team of 20, count on hundreds of times a day. So that means hundreds of restarts per day. So it just expect it to be happening. So make sure that your your data flows are, are atomic and safe or item potent at least so that you know things don't go bad when something gets gets shut down in the middle of an operation. But then further beyond that, yes, uh, for better user experience, it's nice to, and, and Go lets you do this pretty well. Other languages, I don't know how easy it is, but let it when it receives the signal to start shutting down, the way Go handles this with the smart shutdown and its HTTP handler is to stop accepting the requests and this would be the time when that liveness or readiness probe turns off in, in Kubernetes. So the process is still healthy, but it's no longer taking new, new requests. And then it finishes up whatever requests are currently in flight. So that way you, you don't have your, if your customers are browsing and you didn't do this, they just get something like a weird error or a blank page or the server disconnect, you know, the remote host disconnected sort of message and it's not very friendly. So finish handling the in-flight requests and then shut down the process. So, you know, if you, if you put that in, if you start your application with that assumption in mind, it's so, so much easier than trying to retrofit that to an application that, that doesn't have that at the beginning. <laughs> Definitely. That's one of the, I'll, I'll plug Alex Edwards' Let's Go Further. It's a ebook that he wrote specific, specifically for building APIs using Go. And that was one of the things that came up in the book that I was really surprised to see addressed and well-documented. He's got an entire chapter on there on how to shut down a server and how to run a, a background process that allows your in-flight connections to complete before shutting down. One of the other things I was happy to see in there are all of your database queries are done with context and the context carries with it a timeout. So if your database query doesn't complete within a certain amount of time, then that timeout's going to kick in and then you can gracefully handle that and send the client back some reasonable reasonable message to recover from it. Yeah. And that's okay. something that had I not been reading his book, I would have done wrong multiple times before I stumbled on the right way. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, I've done this wrong so many times and I, I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> if I'm doing everything right yet, but I know I've done it wrong a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another re- another concept that relates to this, I suppose, is relates to the idea of upgrading frequently, is have some plan in place for your database migrations. 
uh, if you're using if you're using a database, if you're using SQL or something like that in particular, it doesn't need to be fancy, but just have that ready and expect it. Your whatever schema you have now will not be your final schema. Right. So expect upgrades and, and have something in plan for that. Pick your pick your database migration tool or library early. Yeah, he recommended a tool called Migrate in the book, and I've been using it. It's very similar. I think all of the the DB migration tools are, are pretty similar. You know, it creates a migrate for every database schema change you make. It creates an up file and a down file. You know, the up is where you yeah. implement the change. The down is how you roll back from that change. I don't know if we want to get into this, but I don't like the down files. And I always skip them. And I wish I had a library that didn't even allow them. What's the reason behind that? Because down is never safe anyway. And I, I think it gives you a false sense of security. So I, I think a better approach is to just never do destructive upgrades with, with the with the with the occasional exceptions that you recognize sometimes you do need to delete data so so for example rather than renaming a column you add a new column and then you maybe migrate the data to the, to from the old to the new but that way and, and the reason for that is if you just do a rename and you have some old version of your if you have 10 copies of your service running and one of the unupgraded versions is still running and tries to read that old column it's going to start crashing and spitting out errors everywhere yeah so regardless, it, it, unless you only have one instance running, you need to do a rename anyway. <laughs> yeah. If you want your service to be stable. So if you do that, if you follow the best practices anyway, to keep backward compatibility, you cannot do a destructive change anyway. Right. So then there's no need for a downgrade. So, and, th- and then of course, there are times you need to do a destructive change, you know, that old column, you know, you aren't using it now for six months, and it's just wasting space. Okay, go ahead and delete it. But by that time, you know, it's safe to delete it, you're never going to want to back that out anyway. Right. You don't need the down anyway at that point. So that, that's that's my reason for for not liking the downgrade option. I think it makes uh, it, it puts us in the wrong mental state and makes us think, oh, yeah, if this doesn't work, we can just go backwards. And you shouldn't be doing anything that you want to go backwards from in the first place. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I totally see your point that, that how that gives you a false sense of confidence until you do it. And then you're like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Debian developer for many years, and of course, they had the same problem, but not a, not for data, for, for everything on your system, mm-hmm. config files and and whatever, you know. So they try to give you the, the, all these all these upgrade and downgrade hooks to, okay, what if your system goes from version one to two, and then you want to go back from two to one, and then they have all these different states in there. So you know, what if your upgrade failed? So now you're in this broken state, and you want to go down. So how do, so the hooks gets all these different variables like okay old version is two new version is one and current state is unknown okay what does your script do in that case right (laughs) so it's it's incredibly powerful but also immensely complicated almost no package ever does it correctly so there's no way around it really in in that sort of system but it, it gives you a glimpse into the complexities that go into this thing so my preferred approach is whenever possible just avoid the complexity and keep your upgrades non-destructive seems reasonable what else can we talk about what about user management do you uh build that yourself do you rely on third party it depends on the tool i'm building i don't want to i have definitely i've more often done it myself but i've also depended on third-party tools yeah i mean i I think i think for a simple tool like like one 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 simple approach is just uh depend on third-party oauth like a facebook account or google login right and then maybe you keep track of, of that user and their local preferences if they have them but you you have you don't have their password, you don't have anything about them except that their Google ID or their Facebook ID. Now, I've done that for some apps, and that makes it simple. You have to set up your OAuth flow, which can be complicated depending on on things, but it's less complicated than 
than managing, uh, like, enter your email address. Okay, I'm going to send you a confirmation email. Uh, now would you enter the code? And you know, there's so many, there's so many moving parts in a flow like that. And so much, so many security, poten- potential security holes. Right. You know, wh- what I see over and over and over again is an, a message that says, sorry, that email address already exists in our system. <laughs> yes. And if you're listening to this and you don't know why he was laughing, never do that because you have just given anybody in the world access to your database. And, and I, I don't, I don't mean like literal access to your database, but they, they can probe your system to see who has an account on your system. If you, if you are a competitor to, I don't know, to, to Microsoft, uh, Microsoft can now start plugging their customer email addresses into your system and see which ones have accounts. And now they know which of their customers are your customers too, and they can start spamming them or, or whatever. So you, you need to, you need to never say, sorry, that email address is already taken on our system or something like that. Instead, you say, and you've seen this. Everybody's seen this on their own, you know, as a user, where he says, you know, password recovery or create a new account. And you put in something that says, if this account is exists on our system, you'll be getting an email soon. You know, that, that's, that's the safe way to do it. But there's all these corner cases. And, and, and even what I just said is, is a very simplified version, but there's all these corner cases that open you up to security holes when you start doing your own user management. So if you can avoid it, you can save yourself a lot of headaches. Maybe you just avoid it for an MVP or for first version and you add that later when it becomes more essential. Yeah, another one is you'll commonly see the message invalid username or password. Yeah. A well-designed system will never tell you which one was incorrect, just that one of those was incorrect for that same reason. Exactly. And then you know, this, this touches on another topic of, of sequential user IDs or, or any sort of IDs. Some people have probably heard of this. This is more into the software development side than DevOps, but uh, you know it's related. And if you have, say, a, a sequential ID, a primary key, user ID one, two, three, four, as you add them, that can be dangerous because it tells every user how many users already exist in your system. So then your competitor comes along and creates a new legitimate account, and they get user ID 10,054, they know that there's 10,053 previous users on your system. So, you know, they can start to get some, some details like that. So the, the the solution to that is to use some sort of random ID or a UUID or something like that. But it, these are all uh, security and information leaking topics that really like, probably uh, belong on adventures in computer security or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think, are there any tools? I mean, I'm sure there are tools. Are there that like look for that, that look at your database schema and say, hey, you shouldn't be using a sequential ID here or look at your specific error messages or is that just a manual process? You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are tools. Uh, they're probably fairly system specific. Yeah. Uh, I don't know of any, but I, you know, I, I can imagine if you're using Oracle and Java that there's tools to do that sort of thing for you. There might be some for Postgres. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, th- there are linters for Go that will help you detect things like sql injections and things like that and probably for any language so you know that's a that's a related topic that you that i know there are tools for oh on that note are you an orm fan or write your sequels query i don't like orms (laughs) i I think they are one of the stupidest inventions uh, in in computer computer industry ever And, and and here's here's my summary version orms make easy things easy yeah. You want to do select star? That's easy in an ORM. The thing is, it's already also, it's also easy to begin with. So what you don't need it. So they make easy things easy and they make difficult things impossible. So you know, there's, there's like this, this scale. Uh, if, if you imagine on the, on the, on one side, the easy stuff and on the other side, the, the hard stuff, you know, it's, it's kind of linear if you use straight SQL, but it gets exponential if you use an ORM. 
easy yeah. stuff. Just get it. there's no point to use it for the stuff where it's easy, and there's and and it, you can't use it for the stuff where it's hard. Agreed. And I, the thing I don't like about ORMs is when you get into those cases, it's really hard to like see what what SQL are you generating for this, and and how do I tell you not to do that to do it this way? When when I was first introduced to ORMs, it was I was it was back by Pearl days. It was uh, I don't remember the name of their, their popular ORM, but anyway, I was I was using it. I was like, oh, this is cool, this is fun, uh, and then I you know I got to the point where like okay, I, I want to make I want to do this join uh, on this index and whatever. It's like ah, oh, it's a little bit tricky. Oh, uh, you know, you play with it while you finally figure it out. And then I, I was getting to, into more and more advanced cases, and eventually I got to the point where I would spend hours. I had the SQL query I wanted, right, and it worked. How do I make this fit into my ORM? And at that point, why would I care? You know, it yeah. was such a waste of time. How do I, how do you reverse engineer this actual working query into the ORM? I mean, it it it, it took me hours, probably weeks of multiple hours per day, and my my colleague telling me, Jonathan, stop, you're wasting time. <laughs> like, oh no, but I can make it work. Right. Yeah, I, it was a hard learned lesson. Now I. I don't use ORMs. Now, having said that, there are times when SQL generation is useful, but you don't need an ORM to get uh, SQL generation. You know, if you want to, if you want to take a an object and, and do an insert, I, I completely get the desire to not have to type out insert and you know type out every column name, and then you know type out twenty five question marks. I understand right. not wanting to do that. I get that completely, but you don't need an ORM for that. You just need an SQL generator for that, and there are many for every language out there. They're bundled with ORMs, but but the ORM, keep in, li- dear listener, ORM stands for Object Relation Mapper. It doesn't stand for SQL Generator. So it, it's it's about mapping objects to relations and vice versa, which, by the way, almost nobody does write in in the first place. <laughs> How many times have you seen a web application that queries data from a database using an ORM and turns it into some sort of table to display on the web interface? Yeah. Now, tables are, are relational data. That's what relational data means, columns and rows. So you're taking, a, you're taking relational data from your database, turning it into an object, and turning it back into a relation. That ORM is just wasting space, literally, in that case. So now, to answer your question, I don't like, I don't like ORM. No, oh, I hadn't picked up on that. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do another plug for uh, JetBrains here because they bundle in a database console in all of their tools, and you can actually use it to generate the SQL for you oh. to get around what you were just mentioning, you know, of like a, a really large insert of typing out 25 question marks or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll generate that for you. So do you like ORMs? I, I kind of got the sense, maybe maybe not, but not as passionately as me, but feel free to correct me. Yeah, I'm definitely not as passionate as you, but I, I do agree that I think if, I think it's so important. I think it's more important than whether or not you use the ORM. I think it's more important that you understand this underlying SQL that you're trying to use mm-hmm. and that you could write that yourself, whether or not you choose to or use use an ORM. You know, I, I don't personally think an ORM is the right way to go, but I do think that understanding SQL is mandatory if you're going to be working with a database. Yeah. If your reason for using an ORM is so you don't have to learn SQL, that's a bad reason. Right. Yeah. If you understand the SQL and you still choose against my own personal opinion to use an ORM, then, you know, of course, that's that's your decision. And and maybe you have a good reason for that. But don't use it as an excuse not to learn SQL. SQL is not that hard to learn anyway. If you can it's learn really Go or Python or whatever, you can definitely learn SQL. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> my SQL's... wife does SQL. She doesn't do programming. I mean, my wife is a 
uh, a financial a, a analyst, essentially, and she knows SQL. So if my wife can do SQL, there's no reason any programmer listening to this show can't learn SQL. Yeah, for sure. Have we solved all the DevOps? I think so. Nice. I feel pretty good about it. I'm ready to go, uh, go write some code. Cool. Which ORM are you going to use? <laughs> a string that contains SQL. <laughs> <laughs> With... What do they call with parameters to eliminate the possibility of a SQL injection attack? Exactly. Well, no string concatenation. Cool. Right on. Should we do some picks? I think so. Alrighty. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Shall I go first? Sure. So I've been sitting here in my office with a, you can't see it since this is a podcast. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> but there's a gaping hole in the ceiling above my head with some insulation hanging out as my uh, my, my office slash studio is being renovated. And the, the guy doing it, it has been working on some high priority projects across town. So I've been sitting here in this office with my laptop. My main computer is sitting behind me, but without anything hooked into it. And I really miss my super ultra wide monitor. So that's my pick for today is a nice monitor. I have a super ultra wide Samsung monitor. It's a curved monitor that I normally use. It's sitting unplugged for the last three weeks, just wasting space lately. Collecting dust. I will give a caveat, though, to anybody who doesn't already have one. And don't tell my wife I'm saying this because uh, she didn't like that I spent so much money on that monitor. An ultrawide might be enough for you. So an ultrawide is basically 150% the width of a normal 16 by 9 monitor, whereas a super ultrawide is literally double. It's a 32 by 9 uh, aspect ratio. Uh, I find myself never using the full screen real estate. So you might you might consider saving yourself a little bit of money and going with an ultrawide. Uh, make sure that you would use the super ultra wide if you're going to spend that money. I know some people do. Some people have six monitors and think it's not enough. And if if that's you, then of course go go right on ahead. But uh, yeah, either a, an ultra wide or a super ultra wide monitor is so great. It's so much better than two monitors. I have to say, even the ultra wide, the the 150 width, is better than two regular monitors because you don't have that seam in the middle. Yeah, get yourself a nice wide monitor. That's my pick. I don't care what brand. Right on. Go to Tom's Hardware or whatever. Review it. Pick a brand you like. But uh, that's my, that's my pick for this week. Yeah, there is no right answer when it comes to monitor. It's always the one that you were going to buy, but went with this other one instead. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, it depends a lot. I mean, if you're doing graphics editing or, or something, that then that's going to change your pick over, say, gaming. Although the truth is, these, at least when I bought mine a year and a half ago, they were all, quote, gaming monitors. That might be changing by now. But yeah, and whatever advice I gave you will be outdated in three months anyway. So just do your research. I'm giving you, I'm, I'm picking the form factor, not the brand or model. There you go. Safe call. All right. So I've got two picks this week. I think it's the exact same picks I had last week because I liked them so much. One is the book, The Sovereign Individual from James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees Mogg. Super cool book. I'm a just over halfway through it. The whole theme of the book is it compares how society and governments changed when we entered the agricultural age and when we entered the industrial age and uses that to make some predictions about our time now as we enter the information age. The book was written about 20 years ago, just before the turn of the century. And so it's it's really interesting read right now because you get you know, a couple decades 
of history to look at what they predicted back then and how they're tracking on them and then use that to to make forward looking forward looking judgments or uh, decisions on what you do from here. The other pick is this project that we were talking about on this episode. It's called trustified.io. One of the things that I see a lot of people struggling with is how do I get a job without experience? How do I get experience without a job? And we have this crazy process of doing lead code interviews. And really the answer is the fact that we all know what the people we've worked with in the past are capable of. So I'm building a system that lets you document that. So whenever you look at someone's skills, you can see what skills they've had based on people they've interacted with. And you can see how well how well those people who recommended them are trusted in the community. So it's skills assessment based on a network of trust. And um, yeah, head over to trustified.io. Check that out uh, if you're interested in the project. But I'm also documenting how I build this from scratch. So if you're looking to build a portfolio project or do a startup, I'm documenting on on the website and on my YouTube channel, the architectural decisions I make, the code decisions, the financial metrics, everything. So I'm just revealing it all there if you're interested in that. And uh, those are my picks. Super cool. Looking forward yeah. to see that one materialize more. Should be fun. All right. And I believe that wraps up our episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.